Hey everyone, it's Jacob. Welcome to Treehugger Radio. Incidentally, this is the last installment of our show. For this last show, I've excerpted some of my favorite moments from the unbelievable roster of guests we've had over the years. It's been a terrific run. We started back in 2005 with basically no idea of what we were doing. Over the years, we've been just so lucky to have a steady string of the most remarkable guests anyone could hope for. Celebrities, scientists, activists, authors, Nobel Peace Prize winners, a woman who ate a live mealworm to prove the benefits of bug cuisine. It's been incredible, and I feel just beyond lucky to have had this opportunity. I want to thank all the guests who took the time to be on the program. Treehugger for being so supportive and giving me the freedom to run the show basically any way I wanted to. I want to thank Brian Merchant, who co-hosted with me for the past couple months, and a very profound thank you to everyone who listened to the show. My deepest hope in, in all of this is that something you heard might have inspired you, deepened your appreciation for the web of life, or even moved you to change the world for the better. This planet, our home, is unfathomably wondrous. It's been an immense honor to get to share the perspectives of such visionary people. So as I said, this show, we're going to kind of revisit some of the moments from the past. First up is Wade Davis, one of the world's best experts on vanishing cultures. He's trained as an anthropologist and an ethnobotanist, written scores of books, including one that's an all-time favorite of mine called The Serpent and the Rainbow about voodoo zombie culture in Haiti. People get called the real-life Indiana Jones more than seems realistic, but I have to say, this guy really seems like he deserves it. He's got a knack for not just studying, but participating in the rituals and the cultures of people from all over the world. I asked him for an example of a group that's confronting climate change, despite having very little hand in creating it. Well, I mean, I think, I, I, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I write about in, in my most recent book, which is called The Wayfinders, is how how certain cultures create a notion of what one might call sacred geography. And I don't mean that in the spirit of sort of hippie ethnography. I mean, really, what does it mean for a people to believe that the earth is animate, responsive, and that human beings um, have reciprocal obligations to the earth, just as the earth itself must provide for the well-being of human beings? Well, many cultures around the world have precisely that sense of a spirit of place and landscape. And they look upon climate change as... Uh, something that is their responsibility. In other words, I, I spent some time in Peru recently at a remarkable ritual called the Coyariti, which is a, a pre-Columbian um, ritual that's been influenced by 500 years of Christianity, but it's almost like an Andean Woodstock. You have hundreds of thousands of Indians, or certainly tens of thousands of Indians, all through the southern Andes of Peru who come together in a sacred valley called the Sinicata, just just after the Pleiades reemerged from the sky and before Corpus Christi. And they carry their crosses from their home communities high into the sacred valley to implant them on the tongues, three tongues of a glacier that descends from an, 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 an extraordinary um, mountain. 
And they leave the crosses overnight, and then the next day, the crosses empowered by Pachamama, empowered by the earth, are carried back to the communities. And traditionally, the act that has completed the sort of sacred cycle of the divine in this pilgrimage uh, is the act of chipping small bits of ice from the glacier to carry them back to the community so that the elders and those incapable of making the arduous pilgrimage can still benefit from the positive energy that comes out of the ritual retreat. And watching the recession of those glaciers, the people themselves have decided no longer to chip that ice away. An amount of ice that, of course, was trivial in the scheme of things, but again, they're taking personal responsibility. And we forget that we treat climate change as a kind of an engineering problem or a technical problem. But for people who really think the earth is alive and that they have a responsibility for the maintenance and the well-being of the earth, they watch the impact of climate change and they feel it in very deep psychological ways. And that's something you have to sort of factor into your, your thoughts about climate change. I mean, yes, people talk about the, the Ganges becoming a seasonal river within a generation or two with the melting of the ice of the headwater glaciers. And that will affect the water supply of 500 million people. But the river Ganga or the Ganges is also the sacred river of over 800 million people. So, you know, what will, what will what will it mean to them when the river no longer flows to the sea? And one of the things to begin to think about this is where did we start to think of the land as we do? You know, a kid from Montana raised to believe that a mountain is a pile of rock is going to have a very different relationship than a kid from Peru raised to believe that a mountain is a spirit or a deity. It, it's not, the issue is not who's right and who's wrong, but how does a belief system of both parties change or influence their relationship to landscape. You know, Jacob, I, I was raised in the rainforest of British Columbia to believe that those forests existed to be cut. And that was the foundation of the ideology of scientific forestry that I learned in school and I practiced as a logger in the woods. That made me profoundly different than my friends amongst the First Nations who believed that those same forests were the abode of Hukuk and the crooked beak of heaven and the cannibal spirits that dwelled at the north end of the world that had to be embraced during the Hamid's initiation such that the wisdom of the wild could come back to the potlatch. Now, the interesting thing isn't whether I was right. Was that forest merely cellulose and bored feet? Or was it the domain of the spirits, but look at the consequences of the two belief systems. The First Nations lived in those forests with having a modest ecological footprint for generations. In but two or three generations, my particular cultural heritage uh, tore those forests asunder. And I think it's worth remembering where we got this idea. You know, when, when Descartes famously said that all of existence is sort of mind and matter, in a single gesture, he not only swept away all instincts for mysticism, myth, and magic, uh, he also devitalized the earth, a process that reached its sort of culmination in the 20th century when Saul Bellow famously said science had made a house cleaning of belief. And for us, the earth has really become just this inanimate object ready to be exploited uh, for our, our own economic needs. Most peoples from around the world do not view the earth that way. But that doesn't mean that they're, they're sitting there in some kind of Thoreauian bliss having no impact on the earth. Rather, they have this complex reciprocal relationship with the earth, which is played out in ritual, ritual obligations that go both ways. Wade Davis is also an explorer in residence at National Geographic. His latest book is called Into the Silence, The Great War, Mallory, and the Conquest of Everest. 
If you supplement your news with content from the UK, you've most likely stumbled across the writings of George Monbiot. He's a regular columnist for The Guardian. Uh, seems to have a special inborn passion for arguing and debating, and he's good at it. When I published our interview on Treehugger in February this year, I wrote that he's a self-badged sheriff of rational thinking, which might be a little over the top, but uh, I think this is evidenced by his willingness to go after not just corporations and shifty politicians, but to take his fellow environmentalists and liberals to task when he thinks their reasoning is squishy. Here, I ask him how he sees the climate science discussion differing on opposite sides of the Atlantic. Well, in, in the rest of Europe, um, I'd say that people are rather more enlightened and science is held with somewhat more respect than I think it is either in the UK or in the US, where science is often perceived as um, something as, um, as as easy to dismiss and um, as subject to alternative realities as as anything else in politics. And, you know, both um, um, politicians in the US and in the UK are very adept at creating an alternative universe in which they manage to invert much of what we know about the world. And uh, the difference, I think, between the US and the UK is that we have a regulated media, which means that we don't have an equivalent of Fox or any other overtly politicised broadcasting channel. We, we have it a great deal in the newspapers, of course, and the great majority of the newspapers tend heavily towards the right um, because, unsurprisingly, because they are owned by either large corporations or very rich men. And large corporations and very rich men want the same as everybody else. They want a better world for the likes of them. And a better world for the likes of them means, on the whole, a worse world for everybody else. And they try to engineer that better world for themselves by distorting the evidence and misreporting what goes on in the world. And so they've created a debate about climate change which bears no relationship to any such debate taking place in the scientific community. It, it's entirely a, a, a media concoction and, and a media debate. And, you know, people can talk about it till they're blue in the face. It doesn't actually change the scientific facts. You can read all of George Monbiot's articles at monbiot.com. That's M-O-N-B-I-O-T. His forthcoming book is about the art and science of rewilding, or helping land return to its natural state. If you can think of an economist as a rock star, Jeff Sachs is a rock star economist. He's one of the top in the world He's written a bunch of books that may sound familiar to you, The End of Poverty, Commonwealth, and the Price of Civilization. He also heads the Earth Institute at Columbia University. He's a special advisor to United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. There was talk of him becoming the president of the World Bank recently. Occupy Wall Street got Sachs really fired up. And if you look this up on YouTube, you can see him talking with crowds at Zuccotti Park, last summer using the human microphone, talking about global issues of poverty, corruption on Wall Street. It's pretty phenomenal. Here you have one of the most respected economists in the world talking about the importance of the Occupy movement, saying it's dead on. Well, I am counting on it coming back uh, in the spring. Um, 
I, I really uh, hope that the social activism and the social movement continues. We need it in this country. We need it worldwide, in fact. Uh, a market economy that is uh, untethered by ethics, uh, by uh, norms of fairness, by decency to the poor uh, is a broken society. And we have a broken society in a lot of ways in the United States right now, very corrupt politics, uh, inequality that is uh, really uh, unmatched uh, um, since uh, the era of uh, the just before the Great Depression. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, a lot of uh, joblessness and uh, difficulty of a lot of young people in finding uh, the kind of uh, jobs uh, and entry into an economy of the of the 21st century uh, global highly competitive variety that we face right now and i thought the occupy movement was uh, just nailing it in this regard uh the uh, we are the 99% is is the point uh which is that the top 1% in america just ran away with the prize operated with impunity uh, the Wall Street 1% broke the law repeatedly, uh, gamed the political system, and to this day were the politics of super PACs and, uh, and mega contributions of uh, Las Vegas gamblers and uh, oil tycoons and you name it, but not the American people. And this, I think, is a, a huge danger for this country. And what the Occupy movement was doing was tapping into uh, a lot of uh, frayed nerves in America, a lot of people unhappy with a corporatocracy rather than a democracy, but unhappy with uh, how Wall Street uh, did it to the country and then got away with it without, uh, you know, seemingly uh, a moment's remorse also. Now, it was so powerful that within a few weeks, uh, it came to the center of the media and the powers that be closed it down. You know, there's no question. Uh, believe me, Zakoti Park was not closed down because of a public health hazard. Uh, if it was a public health hazard, you would have added one or two portajanis. That's uh, the basic point. It was closed down because it was an incredibly successful method of public education. So successful. Cameras from all over the world were coming. Stories were being carried that you just had to send in the police to clear it out. Uh, and uh, that's what happened. Uh, and I count on uh, the young people uh, leading this effort and feeling this need to come up with new and creative ways to do it. Maybe, uh, you know, as the warmer weather approaches, uh, we'll see, uh, we'll see uh, new, uh, new tactics and techniques for public education. But I thought that this way of doing it was absolutely ingenious and, and working, peaceful to the point Great uh, slogans, uh, and I believe that it's already affected U.S. politics, though we need a lot more. When I, when I wrote the New York Times op-ed about uh, the new progressive era, you know, I pointed out that in American politics, we're talking about waves of change that last 20, 25 years, but also take many years to develop. And I think we're at the start of that new progressive era. If you read Walter Isaacson's bio of Steve Jobs, you'll read about his early years when he was running around barefoot, fasting, meditating, and you'll learn that this book, Diet for a Small Planet, was a big influence on his life. 
Francis Moore LaPay published Diet for a Small Planet in 1971, and it impacted a lot of people who'd never really thought about how what they eat impacts their bodies or the air and the soil and the water. Since that first book, Francis Moore LaPay has written almost 20 more. She founded Food First and the Small Planet Institute. Her most recent book is called EcoMind, and that's what we talked about. It sets out to dismantle what she calls thought traps in how we picture our place on the planet. She says this idea that as a species we're grinding up against our planet's ecological limits is a fallacy. We're hitting the limits of a finite planet. I think that's probably the most widespread environmental message that I that I try to reframe in this book. And one of the metaphors that I use is the metaphor of a pianist, that a pianist uh, who's a composer, say, doesn't sit, oh my God, I only have 88 keys, you know, but rather, what is the harmony that I can create with this incredible instrument? And so it is this idea of celebrating that as we align with the rules, and in the pianist, it's the rules of, of harmony and so many keys, that there's more than enough uh, combinations that I can create beauty out of, or I can create uh, discordant sound. I can create horrible sound, but I can also create beauty. So I think that that that's one metaphor that's been helpful to me of thinking about how do I think about my place on the planet. But I, again, um, that idea that we've hit the limits is kind of absurd when you think about the fact that um, that scientists tell us that in the U.S., for example, that from 55 to 87 percent of all the energy in our country that we're producing is is wasted, <laughs> wasted. That overall, throughout the world, that two thirds of the energy entering a power plant is wasted. That globally, a third of our food is wasted. I'm convinced that's probably conservative. It's greater than that in the U.S., certainly. Uh, only half of the world's grain goes to people directly. Uh, the rest goes to livestock, who return a fraction of those nutrients to us, and now increasingly goes to agrofuels. So how can we say we've hit the limits if we are wasting and destroying more than we are using. So, again, I think it's the framing. It, it sets us up to feel very scared and very competitive with each other. How am I going to get mine? How am I going to get mine? Because it's a scarce world. We've already hit the limits. So that's problematic. And the other big problem with the hit the limits frame is I can see how, if that's the main environmental message I'm hearing, I would assume that what we need are genetically modified organisms and geoengineering because we've gone as far as nature can take us. And that's really bad news if people conclude that we can't go any further with nature. We have to do better than nature. So the whole reframe there is from the hitting the limits to how do we align with the rules of nature, including our own human nature, uh, so that we can all have all of our needs met, which is certainly doable. 1971, the same year that Diet for a Small Planet came out, a Kenyan woman named Wangari Mathai got her Ph.D. She was the first woman in Eastern or Central Africa to get a doctorate degree. 
Through her work founding the Greenbelt Movement, she also became the first African woman to win a Nobel Peace Prize. In fact, she was the first person to win a Nobel Peace Prize for environmental work, period. Through the Greenbelt Movement, she planted thousands of trees in her native land of Kenya and far beyond. Though what she's best known for is this seemingly uncontroversial practice of planting trees, for Mathai, it was always a means of pursuing human rights, fighting corruption, and helping women be more free and independent in their lives. Mathai passed away in 2011. In our interview from 08, she explains how planting trees can threaten the powers that be and how you shouldn't be too surprised if they try to stop you. Well, as many of us know, quite often the environment is not destroyed by people who don't know what they're doing. It's people who are pursuing profits or people who are pursuing personal benefits. And in our campaign, we encountered people in the government who were privatizing uh, common goods that we, they were supposed to be managing on behalf of the people. Exposing such people who are being corrupt, who are being selfish and greedy can be dangerous because those people have power to arrest, to harass, and to deny you your freedoms. And that's exactly what happened to us. But that is a common feature in many parts of the world. Uh, whatever there is injustices, Wherever there is violation of human rights, wherever there is inequitable distribution of resources, and as citizens, we raise our voices, we will always encounter resistance from those who benefit from such injustices. And therefore, to a certain extent, it is expected. But for many of us, we don't start knowing that that will happen. We start very benign uh, thinking that we are doing uh, something very good, like who would object to the whole concept of planting trees and how can planting of trees threaten presidents and ministers and people in authority. But what really threatens is not the act of planting trees. It is the, the act of exposing those injustices and malpractices that people in office carry out. So when they come, when those uh, challenges come, it should not be uh, a surprise and it should not be a source of uh, disappointment. What one seeks is um, support from others or encouragement, and you hope that you will be encouraged by your fellow citizens, by your fellow environmentalists, by your fellow human rights activists and the other people who have tried. But it would be naive for anybody to think that you can get into these uh, activities where you are trying to, to improve situations and hope that those who are benefiting from those situations will celebrate you. No, they will not. If they can, they would like to eliminate you. Uh, if you are lucky, you will not be eliminated but you will probably suffer.
Van Jones is the founder of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. He's a civil rights lawyer and also the founder of Green for All. He wrote a bestseller called The Green Collar Economy. In 2009, he was appointed by President Obama to be a special White House advisor on green jobs. Pretty soon, though, things got a little ugly. He came under severe criticism from conservatives for his past involvement with activist groups in the Oakland area and for some petitions that he'd signed. Things got so heated that he resigned just six months into being appointed. In our interview from the winter of 2008, before all this happened, I asked Van Jones what a green-collar economy actually looks like for the folks who fill those jobs. Well, you know, there's the tendency for people to think about, you know, George Jetson jobs or, you know, Buck Rogers, sci-fi jobs, you know, you know, something at the far edge of your imagination. You can't even think of what it is. You know, the, the big piece of, piece of high-tech equipment in the green economy uh, in the short term is a caulk gun. You know, uh, uh, it's a uh, you know, green hard hat, work boots. Imagine, like you talking about Joe Sixpack. Well, imagine, you know, Joe, the solar guy going off to fix America, sleeves rolled up, uh, installing solar panels, or, um, you know, Rosie the Riveter, uh, not making tanks to fight wars, but making wind turbines and solar panels so that we don't have to go to wars uh, uh, for oil and other resources. Um, you know, it's, 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 you know, people retrofitting and weatherizing homes so that they don't leak so much energy, you know, blowing in clean, non-toxic insulation, uh, double painting the glass so the windows don't rattle in the pane and let out energy and let in cold air, um, uh, uh, slapping up a solar panel on top of the house while they're at it and pulling it, taking out the old inefficient boilers and putting in new uh, efficient boilers. All that is work. You, you know, to, to, to retrofit and repower the country, retrofit all these buildings so they don't leak so much energy, and repower the country with clean, with clean energy solutions like solar, like wind, like geothermal, like smart, non-food-based biofuels and others. Um, you know, these become answers uh, to the energy crisis, uh, to the environmental crisis, but also to the economic crisis by putting people to work. And the great thing about it is the low-hanging fruit here People go, oh, we can't afford this. We're broke as a country. How can we do this? What's Van talking about? The low-hanging fruit here pays for itself. Um, if you you know you retrofit millions of buildings, um, the 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 cost savings, according to McKinsey, not Van Jones, according to McKinsey, the cost savings you know will pay you back for most of that work within two to four years. So you can literally, with a little bit of creative financing, get the work done now and then pay it off. Um, over a two to four year period and never even feel the pinch because essentially all that, that, that payment is coming out of your energy savings. These are smart, practical solutions uh, that will power us through the recession as well as fighting global warming. My interview with Alan Rabinowitz was one of those ones where you have to painfully choose what tiny sliver of his career you want to ask about. There are so many things that I didn't even get to touch on. Rabinowitz is the founder of a group called Panthera. He's one of the leading animal conservationists in the world. He's worked with some of the most difficult governments to create some of the largest protected areas on the planet for big cats like tigers, panthers, and leopards. Rabinowitz has a special relationship with these big predators. They're called apex predators. They sit at the top of the food chain because as a child, he had a severe stutter. 
it made it nearly impossible for him to speak to other people. He could, however, speak to animals, a relationship that's lasted his whole life. He's brought cutting-edge new technology into the field, capturing some of the most remarkable images you've ever seen of elusive species like the snow leopard. He's even helped bring poachers to justice. You also have to look up his performance on the program called The Moth, where he tells the story of his encounter with the last living member of a Himalayan tribe, a man who chose to let his bloodline die out, none of which we talked about in our interview when we spoke In January of this year, I asked Dr. Rabinowitz what keeps him feeling optimistic, even when the outlook of many of his beloved big cats looks so grim. Because we do have wins. We do have victories. I can look back on my life now and realize that there are places out there where there are jaguars roaming, which would absolutely have been citrus plantations with no jaguars places where there are tigers still connecting from one area to another, where that area would would have been flooded or gone. It doesn't mean that it's going to last, that it's going to be there well after I'm gone, but I can't control that. For that, I've got to hope for for future passionate people and future heroes to, to grab the baton and keep on running. But I know for all the pushbacks, look, it's a war. I'm not sure if we're going to win this war, but I'm going to sure as hell win as many battles as I can until I'm struck down in the field. And I'm going to make sure I win more battles than I lose. If we win the war or not, that's going to be in the hands of a lot of other people. But there is hope out there. We, we do not have to lose our tigers and our jaguars and our elephants. We, we can do this. Human beings are an incredible species, and they're capable of doing almost anything that they set their mind to. We, we have not, despite all of the rhetoric, we're not taking this seriously enough. We say we like it. We say we want to. We say tigers matter. But I can tell you 100%, when, when you get a government's buy-in, when you get them to really matter, everything turns around right away. We can win this war. But, but whether I see that or not in my lifetime, I don't know. But I will see myself winning battles, and I'll keep on battling. Because what else is there? Without question, one of the most respected scientists out there is James Hansen. Hansen heads up NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which he's done for about the last 30 years. Early in his career, he was one of the first scientists to talk publicly about climate change, back when nobody even really knew that it was a thing. But as it started to turn into a politically hot issue, he kept out of the fray. He decided to keep strictly focused on the science, which he did for about the next 15 years. But in the past couple years, he's become vocal out of what he feels is, is a moral obligation, writing explicitly about the urgent need to deal with climate change head on. He's even gotten involved in activism, been arrested several times doing civil disobedience. When we interviewed him last June, he spoke about what it's like for scientists to get beat up by pundits in the climate debate and what this does to young people considering going into the field. This is a tough time for everybody, given the economic situation and uh, certainly government scientists, government science has to take its share of um, the belt tightening. 
I think that um, it's what's a little unfortunate is that the contrarians who don't like what the science is saying, you know, are trying to uh, make it very difficult for uh, government scientists, and that has the danger of discouraging young people from, I think, taking up a scientific career, because science is not easy. It's very difficult to succeed in science if you work 40 hours a week, even though you'll never get paid for more than 40 hours. If you want to do reasonably well, you've got to work very hard, and then if you simply get criticized, uh, it doesn't make it a very attractive profession for young people, and that has me concerned. He also describes a very simple but powerful proposal for a carbon tax. The thing is that uh, the solutions uh, for climate change actually make sense for other reasons. Uh, We need to cure our addiction to fossil fuels, and we could do it in a a fairly simple way if we would put a rising price on carbon emissions, a simple fee that's collected from fossil fuel companies at their first sale. And if that money is distributed to the public on a per capita basis, so the person who does better than average in limiting his fossil fuel emissions would actually make money. And if the public and business community knew that that rate of um, uh, uh, the fossil fuel fee is going to continue to rise in the future, then we would move quite rapidly to improve energy efficiency and to clean energies. And that would be to our advantage uh, in terms of developing the technologies that are needed for the future and giving us something to sell to the rest of the world. But as long as we continue to deny the reality, uh, our businesses are going to continue right on on the path they they are on, and the other countries, whoever does uh, move forward toward clean energies is going to be um, is going to be the winner, and we're going to uh, suffer economically. So it's it's really important that the public understand that what's in our long range interest. Another of our greatest scientists, Sylvia Earle, was the chief scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and she won the TED Prize in 2009. When we had her on the show in the summer of 2010, we were in the shocking aftermath of the BP oil spill, and Earle had recently testified before Congress on the impacts that the disaster could have on the marine ecosystems of the Gulf both from the millions of barrels of oil spewing out, but also from the dispersant chemicals that BP was pumping into the water to break up these oil slicks. Here, I ask her if, knowing what she does about the oceans and life in them, she still eats fish. No. No, I used to, but I know too much now. (laughs) And, you know, there are two two reasons. One of them is because I... I know them better than I did when I long ago. All of us should know that that this is wildlife. We we don't try to feed a lot of people with songbirds or eagles or owls 
or even little furry things that live on the land. Our ancestors did when our numbers were small, when there were a few million people, or even when we were up to one billion people at 1800. Our numbers were at about one billion, but now they're close to seven times that number. I've seen population more than triple in my lifetime. There's no way you could feed our numbers with songbirds and and even ducks and geese, as, as many as there once were. We burn through those assets very quickly as our numbers managed to, to grow. And we had access to places with means of killing that didn't exist to our Neanderthal ancestors. In the ocean, it's we've, we've just in fairly recent times, the last couple of hundred years, turned our attention seriously to the ocean. And we're doing the same thing to creatures in the sea that we did to those on the land. Uh, even I remember as a child, the skies darkened with migrating birds that aren't there anymore. They're gone. We have a tiny fraction, tiny, tiny fraction of the number of birds. And it does have an impact on many things, insects, on pollination, on the distribution of nutrients. It's we, I, I come to know enough as an ecologist to realize how tightly coupled a lot of these things are and how seemingly unrelated things do hook together to make systems work. And if you think that we're flying along in the blackness of space, this tiny little blue gem of a planet that is a living system, and we couldn't survive here if we were here alone. Try setting up housekeeping on Mars. It's a daunting proposition. Starting with, where's the water? And then, where's our life support system? What are we going to eat? All of these things that we take so much for granted here. It, and now that we are seeing them decline, seeing our life support system shaken, maybe people will take a different view and think of wildlife in the sea as just that. It's not seafood, it's sea life. I hope that people will come to see themselves as a part of nature, not apart from it. That we have to respect what keeps us alive. We haven't done that. We've treated trees as board feet of lumber. We treat the fish in the sea as pounds of meat. We treat the ocean as a garbage dump. We also treat it as a place to get food, which is contrary, one would think. If we just woke up and realized that we need to protect the natural world, all parts of it, from the tiniest microbe to the biggest whale, as a part of what keeps us alive, and to not squander it. We've burned through the assets during the past century, the past half century, and the, the pace is picking up. We need to establish networks of large networks of protected areas, areas on the land to protect watersheds, to protect that fabric of life that keeps us alive, and similarly in the ocean, large areas. I call them all hope spots, hope spots, because they provide hope for life in the sea, life on the land, and of course, selfishly, because I'm a human being too, life for us. Once again, I want to thank Treehugger, Discovery, all of the amazing guests who took the time to be on the show 
and everyone who took the time to listen. You can always find me on the web at jacobgordon.info. As always, I'm eager to hear your thoughts. Stay in touch.